please open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at verses 15 through 17. The text is also printed in the bulletin. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Um, So 1 John is about, as we've been saying for now, I think, a couple months, and we'll say through until uh, Advent comes around. 1 John is about assurance and joy uh, in your relationship with God. It's God's word to you how... um, about how you can know that you are a Christian, how you can know that you are saved, how you can know that you really do have a relationship with him. And so far, John has used mostly descriptive language, mostly um, language that just uh, distinguishes, it's like distinguishing language, how to tell the difference between um, true and false believers, between those who really do know God and those who only claim that they know God, uh, who might think that they do but, but really don't. So far, he's just using descriptive language like that. Most of the letter, in fact, uses instructive language like that. But in our passage um, this morning, John's issuing an imperative. It's an imperative. It's a command, right? So uh, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And any time that you see a command like this in the Scriptures, uh, you need to make sure you understand what it's really saying so you know what it means to actually keep that command. Um, and you need to reflect on how the gospel of grace enables you to keep that command, how it is that you are made able by God, by his grace, to obey his commands. So John himself actually does that for us in a few short verses. He tells us what we need to know about that command uh, in order to keep it and uh, about the gospel in order to keep it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll talk about three things. Um, what is the love of the world? What is it to love the world? That's the command, right? Don't love the world. So what is that? What is it to love the world? What, what is the love of the Father, which is the gospel part of it? Um, what is the love of the Father? And then how does the love of the Father free us from the love of the world? Um, so what's the love of the world? What's the love of the Father? And how does the love of the Father free us from the, the love of the world? So let's pray, and then we'll find out what John has to say about this. Father, as we consider your word, we ask for the help of your spirit, that you would make our hearts new, that you would transform our minds by your word, by your grace, so that we would be more like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes And pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's the love of the world that he's saying uh, we should not do? What does it mean uh, when we do that thing that we're not supposed to do, when we love the world and the things in the world? Uh, this actually needs quite a bit of explaining, and probably the, the bulk of what I'm going to say uh, talks about this first point, what is the love of the world, so that we actually understand it well, because we've got different definitions of love floating around, and we've got even different definitions of the world floating around, uh, not just around culture and society, like human definitions of these things, but even in the Bible, there's different definitions of these things. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, there's things like marital love, the love between a husband and a wife. There's uh, brotherly love or friendly love. Um, 
there's whatever's meant by saying, oh, I just love those shoes, you know, whatever that kind of love is. Um, so love is a slippery word in English, let alone as a concept, like the concept of what love is, what is meant by everyone when they use the word love in different contexts. <clears throat> in Greek, uh, in, which the New Testament is written in, there are at least a few different words for different types of love. But even so, those different words have a range of meaning, so they don't always mean exactly the same thing. And uh, the word for love that shows up here three times in, uh, in verse 15, um, two verb forms and one noun form of that word love, is, is agape, which is probably a familiar word to you if you've been around the church for a while. Um, but the word agape is even hard to define. Um, even, even that word has a, uh, a little bit of a range of meaning. And here we see that it's possible to love the world with this kind of love, with this agape love. And it's also used to describe the love of the Father, the agape love of the Father, so, uh, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. But the former there, the, to love the world, is not Christian love. Even though that word agape is being used, saying don't, don't agape the world, um, <clears throat> John's forbidding it, right? It's not Christian love, the way agape is being applied there. So that, um, that agape-type love, does, it's not only a Christian word. Right? It's, it's not only, uh, it doesn't only mean being self-sacrificially kind or something, right? Um, <clears throat> and I think from the context, we can see two uh, very important elements of this love, and they're elements of desire and devotion, Desire and devotion, right? Wanting and serving. Getting and giving, right? Uh, those are both bound up uh, in this kind of love. As John explains what he means by love, and he contrasts the love of the world with the love of the Father, he uses language of desire. In verse 16, it says the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, those are the kind of things that characterize uh, the love of the world. And in verse 17, the world with its desires. You know, so desire is an element of this kind of love, this agape love. And he uses the language of devotion in verse 17 when he says, whoever does the will of God. You know, that's kind of the, on the love of the Father side of things. But that, that also is uh, part of this word agape. So this agape love, which can be directed either toward the world or toward God, has elements of both desire and devotion. And... Um, I think maybe you've had the experience of people, uh, a lot of people define love as one or the other of those, right? Um, it's only desire, it's only emotion, it's only feeling, um, or it's only will and deciding to do actions. Um, but it's, it's really both those things. Uh, and you can see those two elements or facets of love in marriage, for example. So, um, you know, let's take a couple who's about to be married Put yourself in their shoes. They're, they're still kind of really in love with each other, right? Uh, they're about to be married. What do they mean when they say, I love you? When they look into each other's eyes and they say, I love you to each other. What do they mean? Uh, on the one hand, they are saying, I want you. I'm so glad I've found you. You make me happy. Right? Uh, you complete me. <laughs> I find my desires met in you. Uh, they look into one another's eyes with what? 
with longing, right? But on the other hand, they're also saying, I give myself to you. I pledge myself to you. I'll serve you. I promise my future to you. I'm devoted to you. They're saying both those things, right? So love includes desire and devotion. And that's, uh, I, you can see that in our text. The object of your love, the object, the thing that you love or the person that you love is simultaneously where you find your fulfillment and it's where you make your sacrifice. So agape love is, in a sense, worship. It's worship. It's this whole heart connection. It's something you do with your whole being, with your heart and soul, with your mind and strength. You either find your desires met and give your life to the triune God, or you find your desires met and give your devotion to something else, something in creation, something of your imagination, which is an idol. Right? Um, so to love the world, which John is forbidding Christians to do here, is idolatry. It's the same thing as idolatry. It's turning to something created, something imagined, to have your greatest desires met and to give your life to, to it, to devote yourself to it. And this also gives definition to the word uh, world, actually. This, this concept of love helps shape the way that we understand uh, how John is using the word world uh, John, both in his gospel and this letter, uses world in, um, in two main ways. First is to just refer to creation, the universe, or life on earth. Um, but second is to refer to fallen humanity, which is principally organized um, in rebellion against God. Right? So not just creation in general, not just this neutral concept of the world, but the evil world, the fallen uh, world, fallen humanity. That's, um, that's the way that he's using it here. The first definition, creation, doesn't carry any negative connotation with it, right? Like we see in our passage. We do see in our passage that there's negative baggage associated with the word world. Uh, but John, John's talking about, in, in our passage, the broken world, the sinful world, the world characterized by hostility, toward God, the world driven by idolatrous impulses to overthrow God and supplant God, the world of humanity that's gone against its own nature. Uh, it's, like, uh, it's like the Bizarro world. I know Joe Pope's not here to hear me reference a comic book, but Bizarro world. Uh, comic books, Superman. Everybody know Superman goes to this other planet where everything's like upside down and this, this guy named Bizarro who's like Superman, but opposite in every way, and he's, like, bad, right? He's kind of the villain. Uh, but it's like it's opposite day there all the time, right? It's kind of like it's opposite day there all the time. Uh, and they have a code. Their world has this code where they say, us do opposite of all earthly things. Uh, us hate beauty. Us love ugliness. Is big crime to make anything perfect, <laughs> you know? So it's bizarro world. Things are on their head, and uh, upside down and opposite. Or it's uh, like the world that Frodo sees when he puts on the ring. Sorry again for the reference to the Lord of the Rings. Maybe I'll try to do that every week for the rest of the year. But uh, <clears throat> when he puts on the ring, you see this visualized especially well in the movies, right? He puts on the ring and things change. Um, the special effects are great. It's the same world. He's looking at the same world. He's in the same place. But it's, it's like dark and melting and everything is just like screaming and uh, being blown away like wind 
and, uh, and everything's under the eye always of the evil one. Right? That's, um, that's sort of the way John's talking about the world here. It's not just what you see around you. It's not just what God made. It's like the anti-world of uh, sinful humanity rebelling against its creator, set against him, seeking autonomy from him, trying to erase him from existence, trying to erase God from memory. That's the world the way that John's talking about here. I do think it's worth, it's important, and it, it fits with the message. It's worth emphasizing briefly that uh, talking about that first way that John uses the word world, even though he's not using it that way here, it's worth thinking about uh, that John isn't saying the world by the first definition is intrinsically evil. He's not saying that creation as God made it, the universe or life on earth, the way that he made it, uh, there's nothing wrong with that in terms of uh, how he made it. In fact, the Bible says that the creation is good, right? Creation is good. Genesis 1.31, the sixth day, every day he made things and he said it's good and God saw everything that he made when he was done on the sixth day and he said, behold, it's very good, right? So everything in the world that God has made is very good. And he has given it to us as gifts, properly to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Right? Um, so when you look around at creation, and even at many aspects of human creation, and human culture, uh, then what you see is good as God intended it. Right? So for example, there's a prayer um, in Psalm 104 where the psalmist says to God, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Um, saying that the things that God gave us are for our good and for our sustenance and for our joy. And it's easy for Christians to mistake, I mean, especially in a verse like this, to, to mistake alcohol, things like alcohol, wine, beer, as being evil in and of itself, Right? But the scriptures say that God gave this and, and everything uh, to us for our enjoyment. Right? Everything that he's made. Uh, we have unfortunately stigmatized several aspects of God's good creation. Another example, it's very common, uh, viewed by many Christians as sort of a necessary evil, is sex. Right? Throughout history, um, Christians have unfortunately viewed sex as kind of a necessary evil. Um, and Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So all that to say, the world, the creation, was given to us by God for our cultivation, for our use, for our enjoyment uh, with thanksgiving, which is the proper relationship that we're supposed to have with the world, right? with the rest of creation. But John is talking about the improper relationship that we have because we live in a fallen world it's a world darkened by idolatry, a world where we seek our deepest desires to be met apart from God. 
uh, where we devote ourselves fully to things that are not God's. Right? So in this world, um, in this world, everything that God has made for our proper enjoyment has potential to be a false god. Right? Everything that God has made and given to us for our enjoyment with thanksgiving in this world has potential to be an idol for us, potential to be a false god, not because there's anything wrong with these things, not because there's anything wrong with the rest of the world, but because there's something wrong with our agape love. There's something wrong with our worship. There's something wrong inside of our hearts. We have put our ultimate love in the wrong things. We've allied ourselves with the fallen world that's arrayed against God. Verse 16 of our text, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, from that anti-world, that bizarro world, right? Again, these, these wrong desires aren't from the creation itself, not from the universe that God has made, but from the bizarro world that we've made by our rebellion. The desires of the flesh is probably best understood as kind of an overarching term meant to describe the, uh, the misplaced, distorted love of human, uh, uh, sinful humanity. Uh, flesh, again, is another one of these words with dual meanings. It, one is a generic term for created humanity, right? Flesh can be just humanity. And the other way you can use flesh is for the sinful, fallen aspect of humanity. Uh, and this is what he's talking about. It's the sinful, fallen aspect of human nature, uh, the desires of these things, right? So the desires of the flesh are our idolatrous loves, our wanting to make our lives work apart from God. And John mentions two, I think, what are subcategories of this as he goes on with that list, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Um, So the desires of the eyes are when you want something you don't have, when you need something that you don't have, in order to get what you think will satisfy your longings, in order to get what you think will satisfy your deepest desires. Think of the, the purpose of television ads, right? Playing on your desires for things like intimacy or security or acceptance or glory. If you drive something that looks like this, with an engine in it like this, then uh, you will have the image and the identity you want. You will be the beautiful person. You will be the powerful person. Doesn't that come across in those television ads? Think of the promises of materialism. If you can just acquire these possessions, then you'll have comfort, you'll have status, you'll have pleasure, you'll have distraction, Think of the promises of lust. If you give your secret time, your devoted time to these images, then you'll have all the intimacy you ever wanted without any of the commitment. Um, those are the desires of the eyes. Right? Those are it. You're trying to fill the gaping hole in your soul with idols that look good, that seem good, that appear good, but they make empty promises. They're not really going to get the job done. And then there's pride of life that he's talking about, actually feeling satisfaction, actually feeling the satisfaction, or pretending that you do, at least, uh, in what you've gained. 
uh, what you've gotten, in your lifestyle, in your achievements, in your activities, in your possessions. This is like pretending that the love of the world has worked for you. Pride of life is like pretending that the love of the world has worked for you. It's boastful pride. It's arrogance. It's pretension that doesn't really have any grounds. There's no real basis for it. And that, I think, is what Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes 2 when he uh, said uh, what was read in our Old Testament reading, starting in verse 9, I became great and surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So to love the world is to follow rebellious humanity in turning to something under the sun, turning to something that God has made or something of our own imagination to meet our deepest desires and to devote our lives to. That's what it is to love the world. In fact, there's a particular order in which the love of the world places these desires and devotion. Agape holds those things together. Uh, The love of the world puts those in a certain order, fulfillment and sacrifice puts those in a certain order. When you love the world, when you devote yourself uh, to the world, what you're doing is you're serving what you worship in order to get what you need. You're devoting yourself to what you worship in order to get what you desire. So the devotion comes first, and then the desires are met with the love of the world. You sacrifice in order to get fulfillment. You serve in order to get satisfaction. That's how agape love works when it's broken, when it's misplaced. But the gospel says that there's another way, and that's the love of the Father. So the second point, what is the love of the Father? Um, This is a reference to the love of God, right? The love that God the Father has for us. And the language can mean Actually, two things, the love the Father has for you and the love that you have for the Father. The language allows for both those things. And um, since it's John who's writing here with his fascinating use of language, it probably both means both the Father's love for you and your love for him. Right? So the love of the Father is the other way. It's the alternative to the love of the world. And in fact, um, John's letter, we get a picture that our love for the Father is founded on, it's based on, it's a response to the Father's love for us. Right? So it says uh, later in 1 John, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Right? And this points to the fundamental difference in the nature between the love of the world and the love of the Father. With the love of the world, we're hoping that our devotion will get us what we desire. We're hoping that our idols would respond to our service by satisfying us. But with the love of the Father, this is reversed. First, he meets all of our desires, fully and freely in Christ, and then we respond with our devotion. We turn to him to have our desires met first, and then as a response, we devote ourselves to him. First, he satisfies us, 
then we serve him. First, he, uh, we find fulfillment in him, and then we give ourselves as living sacrifices to him. Right? That's true and visible in the love of any good earthly father. Right? That, any good earthly father, he has a child who brings nothing into the relationship. Right? Um, and the father gives everything to that child. The father cares for that child. The father showers the child with his love first. And then one night when the father's tucking the child into bed and says, I love you, the child is able to respond, I love you too. That's how the love of fathers works. The child's love is always a response to the love of the father which came first. Love for the world has that upside down. Love for the world has it upside down with the the would-be child begging in vain to be loved and adopted and cared for as a child. That's what the love of the world is. But in the gospel, we have the love of the Father, which is set on us from eternity. There was never a time when he didn't love us. Before he made anything, before he made you, he set his love on you. We have the love of the Father promised for ages in the Old Testament, promised for ages to rebellious children. Children who have already rejected his love in some way. And he promises his love to them. We have the love of the Father breaking into the world to suffer for us and to die for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the love of the Father poured into our hearts through the Spirit who's been given to us. We have the love of the Father pursuing us, initiating with us, calling us, adopting us, fulfilling us, changing us, and glorifying us. Everything that we were made for, eternal, joyful communion with God, everything that we lost when we rejected God, when we set our love on the world, everything that we desperately uh, seek to get for ourselves from these idols, we give ourselves to the idols in order to get All of our desires, all of our needs, our hopes, our longings are absolutely met in the Father's love for us through the person of his Son. The Son of God became a son of man, a human, Jesus Christ, so that sons of men might become sons of God. Jesus was abandoned by his Father on the cross so that we who deserve abandonment would be accepted fully by the Father in him. Jesus was raised from the dead. The the promise of true security is yours in him. That because he lives, so also shall you live. That even though you die, yet shall you live. Jesus went home to his father and to ours, in whose house are many mansions. He went home to prepare a place for you, his brothers and sisters, where you will be received and accepted and showered with his joyful love forever. And Jesus sent God the Spirit to us, the love of God himself, to comfort us in our afflictions like a a good father comforts his children. And every single part of this good news is the Father's love to you first. You didn't initiate that. Your love to the Father is a response to his love to you. So the love of the Father means first he meets all of our desires in Christ, which wins our devotion to him, And this is completely antithetical to the love of the world. That's why these things are mutually exclusive. 
right? It says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If your love operates by devoting yourself to something in order to get your desires met, then you can't know what it means to devote yourself because your desires have already been met. You can't know what that means. Those things are mutually exclusive. But these things being mutually exclusive means it it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Uh, So, thirdly, how does the love of the Father free us from the love of the world? If you've got the love of the Father, if you've got that, then it'll push out the love of the world. They can't coexist. They're mutually exclusive. They can't coexist on an ultimate level anyway. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. So the sources of these two loves are antithetical to each other. And then verse 17, the world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It means the outcomes of these two loves are antithetical to each other. The nature, the source, and the outcomes of these these two loves are totally antithetical to each other. They cannot coexist. And so increasingly, the more that you know the love of the Father for you, right, the more your love to him grows in response to his love for you, then the more it'll push out the love of the world. It's upside-down devotion desire structure. It's distorted desires driven by that bizarro world of rebellious humanity. But that means not just kind of knowing about the Father's love. The text says it has to be in you. It has to be in you. You've got to internalize it. It has to be realized in you. It has to be spiritually in you and practically in you. His love has to be in you, which is like saying, in other words, his spirit has to be in you, which is a supernatural mystery. It's a personal, relational mystery. You can't control it, but you can ask for it, and God says that it's exactly the kind of prayer that he loves to answer. You want to know his love, you want it to be in you, then you ask for it. If you haven't known the Father's love for you, really known it, then you don't yet know what it's like. You, you can't manufacture it in yourself. You can't imagine it for yourself. But, but he'll make it true for you by making his gospel come alive for you. Right? He'll persuade you of his love for you. And when you really know his love for you, when you know the benefits of redemption that are in Christ, all your desires being met in him, then you will start to devote yourself to him in tangible ways that are not the ways of the one who loves the world. They're different ways, different lives. You won't engage with the world um, as the bizarro world of rebellion, but as the created world that God created and said was very good, the way that God originally intended it to be. You'll engage with the world properly again, the way it was supposed to be. The world that's full of very good things that are meant for your proper enjoyment with thanksgiving. You won't devote yourself to idols to get what you desire, but you've already gotten your heart's desire from the Father, and so you devote yourself to Him. You won't be fooled by things like the empty promises of television ads. You sit there and pick them apart in front of your children so that they start to learn these things too, right? Um, The materialism, the empty promises of materialism and lusts, 
You won't be fooled by those things. You'll, I think you can even laugh at them. You'll laugh at the thought that they could give you an identity, that they could give you intimacy, that they could give you security if you just invested enough in them. Those things are laughable when you know the love of the Father. And you'll be able to look at those things that are easily made idols, oppressive idols, enslaving idols that destroy your life. Those things in this world that are easily turned into those things by our distorted and misplaced love. Things like alcohol, things like sex, things like material possessions. And you'll be able to thank God for them. You'll be able to enjoy them properly as you were always intended to. When the the Father's love is in you and your love to him grows in response, you'll do his will. Right? You'll, You'll seek to align your will with his. You'll become generous like him and you'll share his gifts to you with other people and you'll give up temporary comforts in this world in order to serve other people because you've already got all your needs met in him. Robert Lethem says um, in a book called Union with Christ, all things receive the characteristics of that in which they participate. He's talking about idols. When you participate in an idol, by part, uh, or he's talking about whatever you worship, what, what you participate in, what you love with this agape love. So he, he gives the contrast here. By participating in the Holy Spirit, we become holy. By participating in the Son, we're able to contemplate the Father. This follows the principle that a person becomes increasingly like the object that commands his or her worship. Idolaters become like their worthless idols. So in worshiping the Holy Trinity, we become like Christ, and eventually we'll be exactly like him according to our humanity. We receive the characteristics of the things that we worship, the things that we love. So the more that you love the Father as a response to his love for you, the more you'll be like him. And one day, that love will be perfected in your glorification. And you will abide with him forever in a love that lasts forever and never fades. You were made for the love of the Father. Ecclesiastes 3 says that he put eternity into your heart. You were made for that. So you were made for that love to last And the only way that will be true of you is by the grace of Jesus Christ, which is seen in the gospel of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return for you. So don't love the world. Put your trust in Jesus and receive the love of the Father. It's the only love that lasts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, I confess that I feel like I only have glimpses of your love sometimes, and um, only an inkling of it might uh, show through in my own life and my love uh, as it reflects your love for me. And uh, I know this must be true for all of us here. We desire to know you more. We desire for your love to be in us in in a transforming way more. And so we pray that you would make that true by your spirit. Send your spirit into our hearts to use your word, to use your gospel, to show us your love, to assure us of your love in a way that transforms us, to uh, make us love you like, um, like we're supposed to. We were made for this love. We've turned our love away from you. We're sorry for that. We pray that you would win our hearts back by the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.